Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny minton Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Each week, we select three of the defining stories from the paper. We think they are essential pieces of insight and analysis that will help inform you on the go. You can listen to them in just a moment. But first, over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's coming up. Thanks, Zanny. It's May the 2nd, 2019. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. Our cover this week reports how smartphones are disrupting banking. Because the financial system is embedded in the economy, innovation tends to create turbulence. Yet the benefits of technological change are likely to be vast. You can hear more in a special edition of our Money Talks podcast next week. Next, the fight against jihadists is moving to Africa. Despite Western help, governments in the Sahel are struggling to beat back violent extremists. America, would the foreign policy of a future democratic administration simply turn the clock back in America's relations with the world? A full-blown debate on post-Trump foreign policy would be healthy, and it could prove surprising. And finally, a vital part of the drugs industry is broken. It should take inspiration from the entertainment industry. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist, so if you'd like to read more or listen to the full audio edition, please do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. First up, the West is fighting a forgotten war against jihadists in Africa. Nigerian troops huddle around their captain for a briefing. Several rest their rifle muzzles in the sandy ground, which could block and damage them. During the assault on a terrorist training camp, many forget their training, firing wildly and running off their line of advance. After capturing it, they mill about and ignore the booms of incoming artillery. Finally, they are brought up short by an angry Scotsman who shouts, Ibrahim, you're dead! This less-than-successful mock attack took place near the town of Bobo Dulasso, in the west of Burkina Faso. It was part of an American-led training exercise earlier this year, involving some 2,000 elite troops from more than 30 countries. These two-week war games are the most visible part of a big Western push to turn the tide in a bloody, forgotten war. Jihadists are sweeping across the Sahel, an arid swathe of scrubland on the southern edge of the Sahara that stretches most of the way across Africa. They are also causing mayhem in Somalia. America, Britain, France and other Western powers are trying to help local forces in at least 16 countries beat them back. It is not going well. Since the collapse of the caliphate in Syria and Iraq, Islamic State or IS, has been looking for other places to raise its black flag. Africa, and especially the Sahel, is vulnerable. Governments are weak, unpopular and often have only a tenuous grip over remote parts of their territory. 
Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of IS, sees an opportunity. In a video released on April 29th to prove that he is not dead, his first such appearance in five years, the bearded zealot waxed enthusiastic about Africa. Your brothers in Burkina Faso and Mali, we congratulate them for their joining the convoy of the caliphate, he said, according to the SITE intelligence group, which monitors jihadist communications. Major General Mark Hicks, who commands America's special forces in Africa and was in Burkina Faso for the war games, fears that IS is not the only terrorist group extending its franchise into his patch. Al-Qaeda has taken a very serious long-term view of expanding here in the Sahel, and they're seeing real success, he says. His intelligence officers reckon that the groups they track contain about 10,500 jihadist fighters. Most jihadists in Africa are fighting their own governments, but some attack Western targets. If we don't fight them here, we will have to fight them on the streets of Madrid or Paris, says a European intelligence officer. One cannot generalise easily about African jihadist groups. Some are strictly local, having taken up arms to fight over farmland or against corrupt local government. Some adopt the jihadist label only because they happen to be Muslim. Many young men who join such groups do so because they have been robbed by officials or beaten up by police or seen their friends humiliated in this way. Other groups, such as Al-Shabaab in Somalia, are steeped in the teachings of Al-Qaeda, the group behind the attacks on America on September 11, 2001. They tend to focus on spectacular atrocities, such as a truck bomb in 2017 in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, that killed almost 600 people. The most worrying groups are adherents of IS that seek to hold territory. An offshoot of Boko Haram, for example, is building a proto-caliphate in northern Nigeria. Jihadist groups of all varieties are expanding their reach in the Sahel and around Lake Chad. Last year, conflicts with jihadists in Africa claimed more than 9,300 lives, mostly civilian. This is almost as many as were killed in conflict with jihadists in Syria and Iraq combined. About two-fifths of those deaths were in Somalia, where al-Shabaab frequently detonates car bombs in crowded streets. Many of the rest were in Nigeria, where the schoolgirl kidnappers of Boko Haram and its odious offshoot Islamic State West Africa province shoot villagers and behead nurses. However, the area that aid workers and Western spooks worry about most is the Sahel. In Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso, the number of people killed in jihad-related violence has doubled for each of the past two years to more than 1,100 in 2018. And the violence is spreading, spilling across borders and threatening to tear apart poor, fragile states with bad rulers and swelling populations. Such places are already beset by droughts, possibly caused by global warming. Over the longer term, the Sahel is our biggest worry, says Mark Lowcock, who is in charge of emergency relief at the UN. Peter Maurer, the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, frets that conflict and climate change are prompting huge flows of migrants out of the Sahel.
Fear of refugees is one of the main reasons why European military powers are trying to stabilise the region. France has 4,500 troops fighting jihadists there. Germany and Italy each have about 1,000 soldiers in Africa. Britain has set up two specialised infantry units dedicated to training African soldiers in Nigeria and Somalia. America, which is more concerned about terrorism than refugee flows in this part of the world, has more than 7,000 military personnel in Africa. The majority of Western troops do not fight jihadists directly, except in Somalia, where drone-fired missiles have killed many of al-Shabaab's fighters. Most are training local forces. They often have to start with the basics. In Nigeria, for instance... Jihadists often sneak up and overrun army bases because the bush around them has not been cleared. Or they start shooting at them with a small force to goad the defenders into using up their ammunition firing back, leaving them helpless when the main attack begins. Efforts to contain the spread of jihadism by training local armies or killing insurgent leaders are not obviously working. Take Mali, where in 2012, Tuareg separatists and jihadists allied to al-Qaeda swept out of the desert and conquered the north of the country using weapons looted from the arsenals of Libya's dead dictator Muammar Gaddafi. The rebels seemed ready to march on the capital, Bamako, and the south, which contains 90% of the population and sustains most of the economy. French troops pushed them back from the main cities, but not even their expertise and firepower could defeat the rebels, who simply melted back into the desert. There they have survived a seven-year-long counter-insurgency campaign. Pundits in Paris are calling Mali France's Afghanistan, and with good reason. The UN now has more than 16,000 peacekeepers in Mali, of whom 195 have been killed, making it the Blue Helmet's most dangerous mission since its start in 2013. Nonetheless, the jihadists have continued to spread south into Niger and Burkina Faso. The government of Mali has shown little interest in trying to restore security in the northern half of the country, contenting itself with holding the gold-rich south. They have basically ceded the territory and aren't willing to fight for it, complains a Western army officer. Worse still, the government has allowed, if not actively supported, the formation of pro-government ethnic militias that are responsible for a rapidly increasing number of attacks on civilians from minority groups. A flood of weapons from the Gulf of Guinea feeds the mayhem. There are so many assault rifles in Mali that the price has fallen from $600 two years ago to $260 today, says an official. Western governments and armies have started to focus less on Mali and Nigeria and more on Niger and Burkina Faso, hoping that these countries can act as bulwarks to halt the spread of jihadism. We have a window of opportunity to help this country draw a line that they can hold, says Andrew Young, America's ambassador to Burkina Faso. Unfortunately, many of the mistakes that were made in Mali are also being made in Burkina Faso. Militias are proliferating. A cycle of ethnic violence has begun. Too little is being done to fix the underlying problems that fuel conflict, such as failing agriculture, poor governance and poverty. 
Local elites seldom want to end the corruption that enriches them or allow the kind of democratic accountability that might limit their power. Furthermore, the threat of jihadism has prompted some Western governments quietly to stop promoting democracy in Africa, just as during the Cold War, when they propped up awful regimes if they were anti-communist. A similar approach seems evident now. Almost any ruler who is anti-jihadist can seem a suitable ally. Earlier this year, for example, French warplanes bombed rebels in Chad to protect Idris Deby, who has ruled since 1990. In Cameroon, special forces trained by the West have been implicated in brutal abuses against opponents of Paul Bayer, who has been president since 1982. The Sahel is so unstable that foreign troops will probably be there for years, but unless local governance improves, they will not eliminate the jihadist threat. As one Western officer muses, "Are we just building sandcastles at low tide?" Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine five times more savings toward that overdue home addition, maybe even an addition on that addition. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next up, the Democrats and American foreign policy—a chance for radical rethinkers. This too shall pass. Joe Biden told America's allies at the Munich Security Conference in February, "We will be back." The applause he received reflects a longing to return to a world order that existed before President Donald Trump started swinging his wrecking ball. Now that Mr. Biden, Vice President under Barack Obama for eight years, has entered the race to challenge Mr. Trump in 2020. The contest has acquired a foreign policy heavyweight who embodies the pre-Trump era. But would a future Democratic administration simply turn the clock back? In the crowded field of Democratic candidates, apart from Mr. Biden, only Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have so far made serious forays into foreign policy. Still. Those efforts and stirrings of debate among activists point to the potential for a future American foreign policy that could look very different, not just from that of the current administration, but also from the consensus that prevailed before. On the surface, the thrust of the Democrats' approach is simple: reverse much of what Mr. Trump has done. Jake Sullivan, who was an advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, Talks of a back-to-basics dimension to Democrats on foreign policy, value alliances, stress diplomacy. Compared with domestic policy, he says there is less focus on new ideas. Democrats would take America back into the Paris Agreement, pressing the world for a new level of ambition in carbon cutting. They would rejoin the nuclear deal with Iran, though some may want to set conditions for lifting sanctions. They would reassure NATO allies of their wholehearted commitment. They would not reverse Mr. Trump's more confrontational approach to China. There is now bipartisan agreement on the need to stand up to the rising superpower, but would aim to work in a more collaborative way with allies. 
Mr. Biden's candidacy will draw attention to the foreign policy record of the Obama administration. Mr. Biden did not always agree with his boss. He pressed for a more muscular pushback against Russia, including arming the Ukrainians, favoured a tougher approach to China, opposed the surge in Afghanistan and the intervention in Libya. But broadly, he supported 95% of Mr. Obama's policies, says a former foreign policy adviser. As president, Mr. Biden would be internationalist, experienced and familiar. Yet there are rumbles of revisionism. In the party's mainstream, Mr. Sullivan and Ben Rhodes, another senior adviser in the Obama administration, have launched National Security Action, a ginger group to attack the Trump administration's reckless policies, but also to search for fresh alternatives. A number of voices on the left are calling for a more radical rethink. Defending the rules of the road is fine, but it won't mobilise anyone, believes Kate Kaiser, policy director at Win Without War, an advocacy group. Post-Trump, just getting back to business as usual is not good enough, she says. Some on the left want to reconceptualize how we see security. In a paper published last month by the Center for a New American Security, a think tank, she argues for a new American grand strategy driven by values rather than military muscle and involving a reorientation of national security spending to prioritize human needs at home and abroad. This fits with a broad critique of American policy after the collapse of the Soviet Union that it overreached. Well-intentioned moves to spread democracy became counterproductive, involving the country in forever wars and doing enormous collateral damage. The strategy of preserving or extending American dominance around the world is increasingly insolvent, concludes Peter Baynard from City University of New York, writing in The Atlantic. Support for greater restraint is gaining ground, according to Stephen Wertheim, a historian who teaches at Columbia University. But can the ideas of the restrainers, as he calls them, move from the fringe to the mainstream? Three reasons suggest this might be more than mere wishful thinking on their part. First, there are advocates for restraint on the right as well as on the left. Take the bill passed by Congress to end America's support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Mr. Trump has vetoed the resolution, which was energetically championed by Democrats such as Ro Khanna in the House and Mr. Sanders, along with Chris Murphy in the Senate. But it got through the Senate because it also had support from several Republicans, including the bill's libertarian-leaning co-sponsor Mike Lee from Utah. Second, opinion polls suggest there is fertile ground for restrainers' ideas to flourish. A survey by the Eurasia Group Foundation found a big gap between the foreign policy experts who espouse activism and the wider population favouring restraint. Polling by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs shows that millennials, born between 1981 and 1996 and now becoming the biggest cohort of voters, take a more modest view of America's role in the world than baby boomers, born between 1946 and 1964. 
Only 26% of millennials favour increasing defence spending and 44% support maintaining superior military power worldwide. Among boomers, the figures are 41% and 64% respectively. The third reason for supposing that the left's foreign policy ideas might penetrate the democratic mainstream is that something similar has already happened in other areas, such as Medicare for All. We need to stop siloing domestic and foreign policy, says Matt Duss, Mr Sanders's advisor on foreign affairs. One promising avenue for this to happen is an attack on inequality and corruption. Both in America and abroad, Mr Sanders said in a well-crafted speech on foreign policy last October, the struggle for democracy is bound up with the struggle against kleptocracy and corruption. Mrs Warren echoed the theme in an article in Foreign Affairs, urging aggressive promotion of transparency around the world. Treating corruption as a strategic matter offers rich pickings for policy. The effort could begin at home with legislation to make it harder to launder money through shell companies and cash property deals and with beefing up instruments like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. America would then be in a strong position to lead a fight against kleptocracy around the world. Identifying tools that can interrupt the corrupt flows of money that empower oligarchs, princes and China's state-owned enterprises could prove popular. The issue of corruption is unifying the world more than anything else, believes Tom Malinowski, a congressman who sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Tackling it, he says, may be one way America gets its mojo back after Trump. Another favourite theme of those on the left is a desire to see greater democratisation of foreign policy-making itself, a domain seen as excessively controlled by an establishment clique and, above all, by the President. That means, in part, strengthening congressional scrutiny, something that has begun to happen with democratic control of the House. But it also means welcoming wider participation in policy debate. Elizabeth Beavers, Associate Policy Director for Indivisible, which cultivates anti-Trump grassroots movements, suggests that talking about democratising foreign policy is something where Democrats have a real opportunity. Grassroots pressure is a means towards the objective of ending wars. Congress has put down a marker with its Yemen bill. Ms Beavers now has her sights on the Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF, put in place after the attacks of 2001 and used by successive presidents to facilitate interventions around the world. As with Yemen, Democrats will find allies among restrainers on the libertarian right. Rows among Democrats are likely, for example, over military spending. Radicals want to cut it, mainstreamers are more cautious. Policy towards the Middle East, and Israel in particular, could also prove divisive. Democrats are vulnerable to accusations by Mr Trump that they are soft on defence and woolly on protecting American interests. Republicans stubbornly outscore Democrats when it comes to public trust to protect national security. Yet some Democrats are keen to challenge the assumption that strength has to be demonstrated by spending more on defence 
and a willingness to use military force. We have an opportunity as a party to close the national security gap, insists Senator Murphy. We have to talk about our national security vision. So far, most of the Democratic presidential contenders prefer to talk about their domestic vision. Yet foreign policy will creep up on the candidates, predicts Mr. Wertheim. A full-blown debate on what a post-Trump foreign policy ought to look like would be healthy. It could also prove surprising. And finally, Netflix and pills. A vital part of the drugs industry is broken. It should take inspiration from the entertainment industry. A world without antibiotics is horrible to contemplate. They underpin much of modern medicine and are essential for patients undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, organ transplants or common surgeries such as caesarean sections. Yet the global rise of antimicrobial resistance, exemplified by the spread of Candida auris, the latest infection terrorising hospitals, and super-resistant gonorrhea, is alarming. Resistance could kill 10 million people a year by 2050, up from 700,000 today. This week, a UN commission recommended immediate and coordinated action to avoid a calamity whose economic cost, the World Bank reckons, could rival that of the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009. That the pharmaceutical market does not always work well is hardly news. It has failed to develop many kinds of drugs, including new vaccines and treatments for diseases that mainly afflict the poor. But when it comes to antibiotics, matters are particularly bad. To prevent microbes from developing resistance to them, novel antibiotics tend to be reserved for use by doctors as a last line of defence and used for short periods. Hence, volumes are meagre. That would not matter if prices were high, but unlike new drugs for cancer or rare diseases, prices of antibiotics are kept low in many countries, creating little incentive for drug companies to develop new ones. As a result, investors avoid new antibiotic firms and are fearful that they will run out of cash. The recent bankruptcy of Achaogen, a biotech firm, suggests that they are right to fret. Big drug companies have largely bowed out of the game. Governments and charities have scrambled to stimulate activity by putting money into basic research, giving grants to drug startups and taking equity stakes in them. But that has not been enough. Bringing a drug from the laboratory to the clinic typically takes a decade and costs around $1 billion. A more extreme option would be to nationalise antibiotic production, but that would only cause private sector innovation to shrivel even further. Instead, stimulating the development of new antibiotics requires governments to embrace two ideas. The first is that the antibiotics business needs to offer the prospect of decent profits – Asking people to pay more for drugs at a time of public outrage over the cost of medicines, from insulin to cystic fibrosis treatments, is hard. But there are already moves in this direction. In America, Medicare is paying more for some new antibiotics, and Britain's notoriously tight-fisted drug reimbursement agency has agreed to look at how its method for assessing value can be adjusted to incorporate the broader societal benefits of having a new antibiotic. The second idea is to accept some unusual new ways to generate those higher profits, other than selling by the dose. Economists, including Jim O'Neill, have recommended that market entry prizes of $1 billion or more should go to drug makers that launch the most valuable new antibiotics. Split between G20 countries, a prize kitty even 10 times as large would be affordable and value for money. 
But the most promising idea is for drugs firms to change how they charge governments and health insurers for antibiotics by switching to a Netflix-style subscription model. Just as Netflix subscribers pay the same each month, whether they binge-watch box sets all day or watch nothing at all, so healthcare providers would pay a flat rate for access to an antibiotic, regardless of the volume. When the drug is new and being saved as the last line of defence, the drug company still gets paid. And if the antibiotic has to be more widely used, the price does not go up. It may sound crazy, but subscriptions are already being tried in America to pay for hepatitis C drugs. Using this model for antibiotics can square the circle of incentivizing drugs companies to develop a treatment that doctors will then try to use as little as possible. This will not solve antibiotic resistance all on its own. Reducing the misuse of existing antibiotics in medicine and agriculture is also necessary. And more could be done to improve sanitation and processes in hospitals and elsewhere to minimise the risk of infection in the first place. Fixing the pricing model is not a silver bullet, then, but it is a vital part of the answer. That's just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. The whole paper is read aloud each week, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer and get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% 5 back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One USA NA.